Lord, we look. We look to the day when we'll be able to sing with the mighty hosts of heaven. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. Lord, we can say that now. We hear it in our hearts and in our minds and with our ears as we sing. But one day, the sound will be deafening, but not in a painful way, in a way that's glorious as the universe gives you the honor and the glory and the praise due your name. We look for that day with great anticipation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So, two years ago, a space force, if you're not familiar with that, we started a space force uh, about three years ago, which is now separate from the Air Force. But like the Air Force, when separated from the Army, uh, those... uh, uh, those uh, strings are, are are strong for quite a while. But anyway, uh, this commander was removed from his command because he appeared as a guest on a conservative podcast. And he alleged that Marxist ideologies were becoming widespread in the armed forces. Uh, in particular, he identified the 1619 Project which teaches that uh, through uh, slavery, white supremacy was embedded in the bedrock of the nation's laws and cultures, and therefore America is spoiled at the core and cannot be reformed and must be replaced. According to the project, as many of you know, this is nothing mysterious, uh, the beginning of the nation was 1619, not 1776. Lieutenant General Stephen Whiting, Space Operations Command Commander, uh, relieved Lieutenant Colonel uh, Matthew Lohmeyer of command of the 11th Space Wing uh, Squadron in uh, Buckley Air Force Base in Colorado. Some of you have perhaps been by there or around there. And it was due to a loss of uh, trust and confidence in his ability to lead, and that decision uh, he quoted, uh, to quote him, I should say, was based on the public comments that he had made in that podcast. So uh, conservative Representative Matt uh, Getz of Florida tweeted that uh, he would be seeking action against uh, on this with the Armed Services Committee, and of course nothing, uh, nothing came of that, and now uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Lohmeyer is, uh, was not reinstated and is now enjoying life as a civilian. Goodness, John, what in the world does this have to do with our text for today? What, what I'm attempting to do is to provide you with a framework of understanding of what it is to operate from within a significant institution with a narrative that differs from that institution. Divergent views. I mean, think for a moment of how difficult it was for Martin Luther to speak out 
against the church to try and attempt to reform the church from within. Think of how difficult it was for Frederick Douglass or even for Abraham Lincoln, uh, for that matter, in, in terms of, of, of understanding and moving forward the abolitionist movement. Some uh, that you've never heard of, but everyone who was ever put in a prison or everyone who was put in an asylum owes a great debt of gratitude to Dorothea Dix, who, who labored her entire adult life from, from 1812, after the end of that war, until the beginning of the Civil War, to make sure that people in prison and asylums were fed and were clothed and had warm blankets. And what she did there actually ran through the entire uh, system. But think of the difficulties that these people had. I mean, today, in some places around the world, uh, you you know, like the United States, you can get fired, like Lieutenant Colonel Lohmeyer. In other places, you can get killed. And that's no joke. Here you may get heckled, you may get harassed. In other places, you may be executed. It takes courage to speak out. And that speaks to us of Nicodemus. But the truth of what Jesus reveals to Nicodemus absolutely stunned him. And while I have zero concord with the philosophy of the 1619 Project, by parallel, there is something about their conclusion that rings true, not about America, but about Nicodemus. His faith could not be reformed. It must be, according to Jesus, replaced. Read with me. It's a long passage. Had I the uh, ability to do this over again, I would have split it up, okay? There's so much, uh, so much in here. But uh, read with me John 3, verses 1 through 21. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter in the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. With all this talk of dark and light, our initial temptation as we're introduced to Nicodemus is not to be kind. And we think of it as a man sneaking around in the dark, fearful of those around him. And yet when, when we do this, what we end up doing is taking away his humanity. Nicodemus was a man like any other uh, man. And, and like Lieutenant Colonel Lohmeyer, he faced a host of challenges that, trust me, we don't know anything about. All we know was that it was uh, difficult and that to speak against the established narrative, even to visit with someone who has a different narrative. Because I'm telling you, ultimately, the truth does not matter to an establishment, excepting, we pray, the church. What matters in an establishment is that you get in line, you stay in line, you're loyal to the leadership, and if you choose to rock the boat, they choose to throw you out of the boat. That's just fundamental understanding of the way things work. So who was this man who had the courage to go against the flow, who had the nerve to speak to Jesus at all? I mean, Jesus, he wasn't part of the system. He didn't seat at the feet of Gamaliel. He had no credentials from leading Jewish schools. Nobody knew he was outside of the fact that he cleansed the temple. He stayed there for a little while doing miracles. And they're wondering, who is this man and what is he all about? Well, let's look at Nicodemus for a second. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. What does that mean? I mean, to us, that means... Okay, so maybe he was, you know, something. No, he was, it was very specific. What John is telling us was that Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest and the most powerful religious body in uh, Judaism. Uh, He was not a typical person. 
the, the best way to understand in, in our minds, perhaps, is to see Nicodemus as a Supreme Court justice. He was a man of substantial power and influence and reach. Second, he was a Pharisee, a man from the, uh, the Pharisees. So by and large, those were the religious conservatives of the day. And our Lord, and we'll come back to this in a little bit, he even more than implied, because he used the definite article when he says, you are the teacher of Israel. He didn't say, you are a, you're among the best. No, he said, you're the teacher of Israel. We'll see that was not at that moment a compliment. Yet if we focus our attention on the fact that Nicodemus came at night and all the little things that come from that, we risk losing the true significance that he came at all. So why did John choose to record this incident? I mean, it's, it's clear from the writing that John was there listening and, and watching these interactions. Why is it in the Gospels? Perhaps it was to let us know because, you know, Nicodemus appears later on in other texts in a very positive light. Maybe it's to give his background history. This is like the, you know, the movies that they make after all the movies have been made so that you get the backstory so that you understand. Perhaps that's what it is. But I think there's another principle that's involved here. And I think that John was doing that introducing Nicodemus in this way. But this other principle is that you have to enter into the kingdom of God not through reforming yourself, not through good works and that kind of thing, but by being reborn. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus would be understanding this. There's a lot of confusion in what was going on in his mind. But he would have understood one thing is that what Jesus was saying is that the salvation that God would bring to the earth would not come through the vehicle of the Pharisees at all. And Nicodemus may not uh, have converted that night even. I mean, there's some interesting dialogue here. Uh, He may have, he may not have, he certainly moved closer. The uh, opposite that he was converted could actually be implied. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know, we hear, uh, we bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Now, the you there is plural, but nevertheless, Nicodemus would have been put in that group. I think what he was saying was that you, you members of the Sanhedrin do not receive our witness. Nicodemus represented those who thought that good works and performance would put them in a right relationship with God. I mean, and honestly, the kingdom of those who want to clean up their act before they go into church, how many people have you... Have you ever witnessed to, well, I can't go to church. Why? Because I still drink. I can't go to church. Why? Because I still smoke. I can't go to church. Why? Because I still gamble. I can't go to church. Why? That's nonsense. That's nonsense. If God was in the cleaning up business, then 
by cleaning up, we would enter into a right relationship with God. But what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is that's not how it done. it's done. So if you think that you must clean up your act, or if you know someone who thinks that, just share this with them because Jesus actually has something to say about it. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus is like baffled. You wouldn't think he would be, but it caught him completely uh, off guard. And he says, how can a man be born when he's old? Uh, He can not enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, comma, can he? Now, I don't know how Nicodemus said this. I don't know if he said it sarcastically. I don't know if he said it ironically. I don't know if he was asking a serious question, you know, and being authentic about it. I don't know. But what is certain about this is that the rebirth is not physical. The rebirth is spiritual. Now, to be sure, there is a material aspect to the kingdom. Jesus Christ will return when he returns for to establish the millennial kingdom. Uh, he is going to uh, rule and reign on the earth. And this is uh, foretold in all the prophets. You can't read a minor prophet without seeing this in your face constantly. So there is a material element here, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. But Jesus he must see something in Nicodemus because he tries again. He, he tries to move it another step further. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, what Jesus was doing was a, an educational technique, a learning technique, which we all use, and Jesus was certainly familiar with that. And that is, you can't learn something new unless you connect it with something that you already know. Everything that we know, everything that we believe, everything that's within us is all connected at some level to each other. And, and so and this is where Jesus ends up scolding him a little bit. Because Nicodemus should have known what he was talking about. So what was he talking about? What he was talking about was Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. You can write that down and look it up later or turn there. I'm just going to read it for you real quick. For I will take you out of the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. I mean, what's Ezekiel describing? He's describing the rebirth of the nation of Israel and he should have known that. Nicodemus should have known that. So Jesus, it wasn't out of frustration. He's still trying to get Nicodemus to see something here. He says that essentially that the work of the Holy Spirit cannot be observed or controlled 
but you can see the effects of it everywhere, uh, where he talks about how the wind uh, blows and you, and you don't know. Nicodemus was still reeling, and he says, how can these things be in uh, uh, verse 9? And that's when the, the Lord gently rebuked him in, in verse 10. You know, you're the teacher of Israel and, and you don't you don't get this. You should know about this. And uh, this was what was told by the Old Testament uh, prophets. Now, the next part uh, has, has has sent uh, people off into writing books and so forth. And I'll, I'll try to make this part as as simple as I, I as I can. And that's this. When Jesus spoke. And Nicodemus is feeling this, too. And you read this in other texts. When Jesus spoke, he spoke as one with authority. In other words, when he spoke the truth, it was something that was being said in such a way, in such a manner, and with such power that people were impressed by it. He speaks not as he's not passing on someone else's thoughts over there or over here. He's speaking uh, uh, truth. The people love this, but it irritated the daylights out of uh, the leadership. And in verse 13, he makes this statement. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Without going into a long discussion about this, what he's talking, he's validating his authority to speak. In essence, if I can translate this just a little bit, it's none of your teachers, Nicodemus, none, you, neither you nor any of your teachers can tell us anything about heaven and about the kingdom of heaven because you haven't been there. However, that's where I'm from. That's my home. And I have come to tell you about it, the truth about salvation. He was talking about his authority to do that. And then he moves straight from that and he's sticking with Nicodemus. So Nicodemus must be confused, but following at the same time. There must be some glimmer in his eye that he can see because then he talks about how he's going to be exalted. And it's not going to be with a crown, which would have blown Nicodemus away. No, the Messiah, when he comes, will do what? He will overthrow the Roman yoke and he will establish the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, that's not the way it's going to happen. I will be glorified, not with a crown, but by the cross. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Every Jew waited with great anticipation for the Messiah to come. They looked for him to be lifted up, but in their minds it was going to be with the purple robe and the golden uh, crown. They failed to understand that this coming of Jesus Christ was not for a crown, but for a cross. So, some reason or another, Jesus is still sticking with Nicodemus because he's not lecturing Nicodemus. Jesus didn't lecture he saw something there. He was trying to move into Nicodemus's heart and mind. He comes at it from another angle. And Nicodemus, of course, was struggling 
with, with all of this. But the Lord then revealed through that text the work of the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross because it's by virtue of the fact that the Messiah was lifted up on the cross that we can be born again. Not that he put on a purple robe and a crown. Yeah, you know, it was like, Nicodemus, you know the story, and we, most of us, are familiar with the story to at least some degree in Numbers 21 when the Israelites rebelled against Moses and God. And so God sent fiery serpents, uh, and and when you got bit, you died. And so Moses interceded for the people, and God told him, okay, so you make this bronze servant, you lift it up. We would go to Mount Nebo uh, Easter every year. We went there many more times. But outside of the St. Catherine's Church, a very old Byzantine church, there is a tremendous uh, statue, a bronze serpent there for, you know, uh, to represent, to look up at this and receive life. So those who were bitten, you looked at it, you received life, you were healed. And the death of Christ on the cross was is much like that because we are, we need to understand ourselves from God's perspective, from a perspective of, of truth. And that is we're, we're rebels. We're every bit as rebellious as those who rebelled against Moses and God. That's our starting point. Our starting point is we're rebellious sinners, and when given the choice to sin or not to sin, uh, we'll take it on. And yet, it was in that state of sin, that state of rebellion, that God sent his Son and poured out his holy wrath on Jesus Christ on the cross so that those of us who look at him might be saved. And one could argue at this point that Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, one would think he said it all, that's it. Uh, Nicodemus, you should understand this. What more is, is, is there to say? But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with us, too. This is a wonderful lesson for us, that as long as we're, I think, dazed and confused, but as long as we're still there in the presence, he's going to do everything that he can to bring us to a place of understanding. And so Jesus doesn't stop. He says, not only what the basis of salvation is, that is the death of Christ on the cross, but he goes on to tell us why. And it's here, as a poet might say, that we're exposed to the beating heart of God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You know, the Son loves us, but that's not what's in view here. What we see here is the love of the Father, the love of the Father for the world, the love of the Father who gave his Son, and the cross is the measure of that love. Now, the bitter pill that Nicodemus had to swallow and the Pharisees had to swallow was their belief 
You can imagine, you have to imagine, 2,000 years of Christian history, I say that over and over again because it changes our view from what Nicodemus heard. When Nicodemus said that God so loved the world that his head exploded. No, God loves the Jews. God loves the nation of Israel. In fact, every Jew he believed you can find it in the text, would go to heaven and maybe a few God-fearers would, could live next door or at least near. But the nations, they were set for perdition. God so loved the world. God has made provision for salvation because of his love for you and for me For every nation, Nicodemus, I think, is beginning to understand because Jesus goes on another step. He gives a corollary to this. It is God's love that brings salvation. Then God's love also gives this idea that the Son came to save, not to condemn. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. I want to be as straightforward and as clear as I can be and as I ever have been with you. The purpose of God's love for us was salvation, not condemnation. Hell is incidental. It is, it, hell is incidental to this plan. It's not primary. Hell is something that happens through unbelief. It's a place of pain and torment that is brought about by unbelief, not in belief in his son. It only is through Uh, rejection he who believes in him is not judged but who does not he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of god the coming of christ into the world and his death on the cross did not condemn you need to hear that it wasn't the coming of christ that condemned. What we read in the text is that we were condemned already. We were already condemned. We were already worthy of eternal uh, judgment. The coming of Christ was to accomplish salvation. Our Lord's death is the solution, not the problem. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. I don't know how many times to say it, and it's not to, it's not to make anybody feel badly, but we're sinners. We live in a place where our only hope of salvation 
is Jesus Christ. It's not through the rigorous keeping of anything. I'm not saying that spiritual disciplines and the rigorous keeping of spiritual disciplines does not have value. I'm not saying that. I am saying that when it comes to salvation, there is nothing, not one thing that you can do that will gain merit or favor with God. We are completely at his mercy and his grace. And he showed us through the sacrifice of his son that great love for us and to provide a way. Because what we learn about that is this. Jesus was not merely, as Nicodemus said, a man sent from God, but God sent the second person of the Trinity as man. The Messiah will be exalted one day with a crown and with a robe. But when he came the first time, he came to suffer and to give his life for us. Now, if this interview that Jesus had with Nicodemus was packed for him, it's packed for us too. Let us not look towards our works with any degree of them having the power to save. You must be born again. God does not demand. I don't even think he wants reform. His spirit in you will guide you as to what he wants you to do once you're in his family. It's not your efforts that can save you. It's God's reaching to us through his son who died in your place, who took your punishment. And who offers his righteousness in place of our wretchedness. Father, as we, as we look at the text, only really enough time to go through the text. We owe so great a debt. A debt that we cannot pay. And that's a debt of gratitude, Lord, not for our sin. You took care of that because of your love through Christ on the cross on our behalf. And we are quite literally forever grateful through Christ our Lord. Amen.